like many of you listening, I grew up learning to ride with a whip in my hand. It was second nature to smack a disobedient horse. And later, when I learned natural horsemanship, it became second nature to smack a horse who stood too close or responded too slowly to my command. I didn't question it. I'd like to start by paying my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is made, the Pindurup people, and to recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. I pay my respects to them and their culture and honour their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of My Horse Taught Me That, the podcast all about equine behaviour, horse-human relationships and training concepts that not only help you build an amazing relationship with your horse, but also with the other animals and people in your life too. I'm your host, Sarah Jackson from Equestrian Balance, and I'm an equine behaviour geek. I'm going to teach you how to get the behavior that you want whilst also building the relationship that you want with your horse. Spare the rod. Let's go back in time to when I was studying my undergraduate degree. Right before study break, ahead of major exams, I would go out for dinner with a girlfriend on a Friday night. I have chicken at a nice restaurant. It was great. By the Sunday morning, I'm feeling decidedly off. By Monday, the first day of study week, when I'm meant to be cramming for those exams coming up, I am really sick, hallucinating with fever, horrendous stomach cramps, and literally pooping liquid. Not cool. Very, very not cool. My doctor prescribes me Panadine 4 for the pain and sends some samples to the lab. The medication eases the pain but leaves me so spaced out, I can't even concentrate on watching the TV, let alone studying. And each time I take the drugs, they ease the pain for maybe four hours, but I can't take them any closer than six hours apart, so I've got to wait for another two hours before taking any more. And those two hours a pure hell. The lab results come back and the health department actually sends someone to interview me. They conclude that the food poisoning is very likely to be from the chicken that I ate at the restaurant and they inspect the restaurant as a result. Now after a few days I'm able to start eating again but the only thing I can stomach is tomato soup from a can and it pretty much comes out undigested. This goes on for a week before I start to feel human again, just in time for the exams I haven't been able to study for. All in all, this food poisoning experience was so awful that I immediately stopped eating chicken and I haven't touched it now for over 20 years. Can you relate to that story? Have you ever had food poisoning or any other experience that was so unpleasant that you've never gone back for more. 
I mean, I think for a lot of people that this type of experience maybe involves alcohol, perhaps a certain brand or type of alcohol. I know I've never touched Maduri again after drinking too much on a certain night in marine biology camp. Ugh. These experiences are effectively punishes, situations or things that happen to us that change our behavior, specifically by getting us to decrease or stop doing something. Now, most of us tend to think of punishment as something that is issued by someone else because they want us to change our behavior. But it's not always the case, as, you know, countless people who no longer drink Maduri or whatever alcoholic (laughs) beverage is the one for them can testify. You know, it's easy to think that, though, because we live in a society whose governance centers around the use of punishment. Our judicial systems are based on punishment. You know, we've got laws and if you break them, you get punished, either with fines or imprisonment. When Russia invaded Ukraine, most of the world applied economic sanctions in an attempt to punish them into stopping the invasion without getting involved in another war. When we're at school, we're kept in our seats, quiet and attentive by the threat of timeouts, detention or suspension. Back in the early 80s, when I first started school, the cane was used to whip children who misbehaved badly enough. And I recall, you know, some poor kid in Year 7 called Marcus, who was frequently called to the principal's office and caned for misbehaviour. He was the talk of the schoolyard every time it happened. And hearing these stories taught me to fear the principal and what might happen if I did the wrong thing. Growing up, our parents typically used the tactics that their parents used. Smacking, timeouts, grounding, loss of privileges, in order to get us to comply, to behave in the way that they wanted us to. So it's no surprise, really, when it comes to training our dogs, our horses, or even keeping our own kids in line, punishment is the go-to strategy. We've been marinated in it since birth. It's become second nature to us to use punishment, partly because we understand it really well and partly because we just don't really know any other way. And that's what I want to talk about today. The problems with punishment and what we can do instead. There are some major problems with using punishment as a strategy for changing behaviour. And these problems occur whether we're trying to change a behaviour of a criminal, a toddler, a horse or, you know, your mother-in-law. It works the same way. Firstly, as a strategy, punishment is actually not that effective at changing behaviour long term. And secondly, punishment, whether it's effective or not, runs a very high risk of emotional fallout which is kind of an umbrella term that I'm going to unpack a bit more later, but essentially the use of punishment can be very damaging for the one being punished as well as for the relationship between the punisher and the punished. So why is punishment so frequently ineffective? What is needed for it to actually be effective? Well, for punishment to be effective, it needs to be immediate, 
and harsh enough to prevent the learner from wanting to do the behavior again. So let's rewind now like 15 years. To be honest, I was a bit blase about speed limits, particularly the really annoying ones that slow you down to 80 on a 100 kilometer highway just to go through a set of traffic lights. I mean, I always slowed down to go through the lights, but I wasn't always going 80 kilometers an hour as I went past the 80 kilometers per hour sign. So typically I would wait until I was a bit closer to the lights to slow down. And one day I got pinged doing 100 kilometers an hour past the 80 kilometers an hour sign. I was pulled over immediately and given a $300 fine. Ouch. And what do you know? I have never done that again. Ever since that day, I have been so particular about slowing down prior to the changing speed signs to the point that I'm sure it has been super annoying for my fellow road users. It was a very effective punishment. Why? Well, firstly, it was immediate. I was pulled over at the other side of those traffic lights. And secondly, it was harsh. $300 was a lot of money to me at that time. Was I angry? Yes. Was I ranting about my perceived injustice of it all? Also, yes. It did absolutely nothing for my opinion of law enforcement, all of which was totally predictable emotional fallout from the use of punishment. So that was an example of punishment working. But I said earlier that it typically doesn't work long term. So why is that? Firstly, well, often the punishment's not immediate. It's too far removed from the act that's being punished for there to be this kind of cause and effect link made in our brain. Yes, as adult humans, we have the cognitive function to recognise that the fine I received today is related to the transgression that I made two weeks ago. But in terms of that fine being effective at changing my behaviour, the longer the amount of time that goes past between the thing that I did and the consequence, the less likely it is to change my behaviour. And that window of time for the consequence to actually change future behaviour is much smaller with children and animals as their prefrontal cortex isn't as developed. It pretty much needs to be immediate for that link between the unwanted behaviour and the punishment to get made. Otherwise, we can end up inadvertently punishing the wrong thing. You know, the classic example of the dog running off and ignoring the owner. So the owner tries all sorts of things, finally catches the dog and then punishes it, you know, in their mind for running off. But in reality, what's the most recent thing the dog's done? Let itself be caught. So in the dog's mind, they're being punished for allowing the human to catch them, which is just going to make catching them next time even harder. So secondly, the punishment may not be harsh enough. Now, none of us enjoy giving punishment. And to be honest, how on earth do we even know how harsh we need to be until afterwards when we see if it works? But sometimes what can happen is that we punish just hard enough to get the behavior to stop kind of momentarily. So think of the child that's being loud while the parent's trying to have an adult conversation on the phone. 
you know, they might start out by asking the child to be quiet, but if that doesn't work, maybe they raise their voice. Perhaps that gets them a minute or two of quiet, which reinforces their behaviour, so they're more likely to raise their voice again. And then they might raise it louder when the child starts up again. So pretty soon they're going to be yelling at their child to be quiet, but the noise is still only going to stop for a minute or two. So now we've got a punishment that's quite harsh, but still really completely ineffective from the perspective of a long-term behaviour change. Thirdly, all behaviour occurs for a reason. Even if we don't like the behaviour or if we don't understand the reasoning at the time, it makes sense to our learner. There's a reason the horse is pulling back or trotting on the spot or bucking under saddle. And that reason is still going to be there after they get punished. So for the punishment to be effective, the threat of a repeat of that punishment needs to be unpleasant enough to make the reason for the behaviour immaterial. So think back to my food poisoning. The threat of going through all that again is just so unpleasant that I have never eaten chicken again. It's not like I've even wanted chicken and like kind of forced myself not to eat it. I'm like, hell no, don't bring that chicken near me. I have no interest in eating chicken ever again. The punishment was so effective because my reason for eating chicken was quashed. The desire to avoid food poisoning is way bigger than my desire to eat chicken. So my behavior of avoiding chicken continues. So when you think back now to your teenage years, did you ever get grounded? Being able to socialize with peers is a pretty strong need for teenagers. So grounding can be a really harsh punishment. So my question is, whilst you were grounded, did you stay grounded or did you find a way to sneak out anyway to meet that need to socialize? Did you perhaps get really good at avoiding being caught doing the things that you were not supposed to do? I'm willing to bet that for at least half of the people listening right now, getting grounded didn't work in the way it was intended to. It wasn't an effective punisher because the need to socialize was stronger than our concern about what might happen if we didn't do what we were told and stay at home. This is a similar situation to the horse who bites when girthed and then pulls their head away really fast to avoid being smacked. They've got a really strong need to communicate their discomfort with girthing So the biting behaviour continues, but they also get really good at avoiding the attempted punisher being smacked on the head after they bite. Let's say that our horse has a saddle that doesn't quite fit. So when they canter, the back of the saddle slaps against their kidneys every stride. It's going to be pretty uncomfortable. So the horse starts bucking in the canter to try and get rid of this slappy feeling on their back. And your instructor tells you to make him get on with it and stop being naughty, so you smack him with the whip. The horse kicks out at the whip but stops the bucking. However, he's still got this unpleasant slappy feeling every canter stride that he wants to get rid of. So now he's starting to refuse the canter and just trots really fast instead. So in this instance, the whip use is a strong enough punisher to stop him bucking, but his reason for bucking hasn't gone away. 
his desire to avoid the slappy saddle on his back is on par with his desire to avoid the whip. So he's trying something else. He's avoiding the canter altogether. So our punishment, while successful at stopping the bucking, hasn't really been successful because we've just created another problem. Now, we could probably wrap that whip around severely enough to get him to canter, but at what cost? Essentially then, we'd be putting the horse in a position where it's unpleasant to do the thing, but it's also unpleasant to not do the thing. So now we just have a whole load of unpleasantness that's going to get associated with being ridden. And all of a sudden, we might have a horse trying to avoid being caught or refusing to go into the arena or biting when the saddle comes out. Just getting more and more problems. Which leads into my second point, which is about the emotional cost of using punishment as a strategy. So there's this massive cost to using punishment as a strategy to change behavior. And that is that the individual getting punished suffers emotionally. They might feel frightened, angry, or helpless. And studies show that where punishment occurs regularly, significant changes in mental health and behavior can result, none of which is good for anyone. So in addition to this, the relationship between the punisher and the punished suffers there's always going to be a big withdrawal from that relationship bank account whenever we use punishment. Whoa, so this is really starting to sound like a bit of a risky strategy, right? Like, especially now when we know that most attempts at punishment don't work long term. Unfortunately, when we use punishment, damaging our relationship is not the only thing we risk. Some of the fallout that we could start to see from our animal includes increased aggression, avoidance of us or of being caught, or shutting down mentally and emotionally, which I kind of liken to, you know, the lights are on but no one's home. The horse is doing the bare minimum required to avoid getting punished but it's not available for more. There's no connection or interest in relationship with their human. It's like mentally they've kind of checked out and gone somewhere else. Now, experts liken this state to depression, and it's a really poor welfare state. So all of these outcomes, aggression, avoidance, and shutting down, are likely to cause a further deterioration in our relationship with our horse. And aggression also has an obvious safety element. So these are things we want to avoid at all costs. So how on earth did punishment get to be so prevalent? How did it get to be the primary way that we govern our societies across the globe if it's so inefficient and has such a risk of fallout? Well, the answer to that is that punishment can be very reinforcing, so aka rewarding, for the person doing the punishing. So let's just say that our little one is drawing on the walls. We catch him in the act, take away the crayons and give him a timeout. He then doesn't draw on the walls for the rest of the day. Ka-ching! We have just been reinforced for giving him a timeout, making timeouts more likely. We are more likely to repeat that consequence. Even though a week later, we discover some crayon drawing on the wall in the hallway that we didn't notice our little one doing. So not only is he still drawing on the walls because we haven't changed the behavior long term, but now he's doing it in a place where we're less likely to notice. 
So whilst the timeout didn't stop the crayon drawing long term, in fact, it made the behavior kind of worse in that now it's happening outside of our observation. We've still been reinforced because the behavior stopped temporarily. Immediately after the timeout, the behavior we wanted to stop stopped. So as far as our brain is concerned, that is a winning strategy and it's going to get used again. So that is how the use of punishment gets perpetuated, even when it's not very effective. If we have a look at the use of punishment in the horse world, it typically involves some form of striking the horse with a whip, the hand, or perhaps a rope or some other tool. Now, in humans, science shows overwhelmingly that smacking kids doesn't work long term, but that it can cause mental health problems, relationship issues between parent and child, aggression, antisocial behaviour, impaired cognitive ability, low self-esteem, and once those children grow to adulthood, domestic violence which is a pretty long list of very uncool stuff. The data is so clear that 65 countries have banned corporal punishment of children. Unfortunately, Australia is not yet on that list, hopefully soon. I know I've mentioned this before and I'm on my soapbox about it again. But the reality is that smacking anyone, whether that's your spouse, your child, your pet dog or your horse is going to risk damaging them and damaging your relationship with them. I want to shine a light on this stuff, not to make anyone feel bad. We are all doing the best we can with the information we have at the time, right? We are all products of our own learning history, our punitive society, our own childhoods. It's normal for us to parent the way that we were parented. But I think it's really important that we become aware that not everything that we experienced growing up was necessarily okay and that it's okay to explore different ways of doing things now that we have different information available to us. It's not a judgment of your parents for you to want to do things differently. I'm shining a light on this because I think it's really important that we start to think about these things, to question the status quo to explore some different ways to achieve behaviour change that don't come with the same risks that punishment does. Smacking is a painful, frightening stimuli. We know from our discussions in previous podcasts about how good our brains and our horses' brains are at making associations between the emotional experience of something, so in this case fear, and the salient element in the environment, which would be us, if we were the smacker or the whip wielder or the lead popper. Yikes, there is no way that I want my horse to associate me with fear or pain. That is not something I want to be a part of my relationship with any animal or human. But, like many of you listening, I grew up learning to ride with a whip in my hand. It was second nature to smack a disobedient horse. And later, when I learned natural horsemanship, it became second nature to smack a horse who stood too close or responded too slowly to my command. I didn't question it. It's only when I started to pay attention to how my horses felt about things 
and focus on our relationship together that I started to realize how punitive I was being and I worked on stopping it. And that in itself was a journey. It's easy enough to decide to not use smacking, lead popping or whipping anymore, but the reality of dealing with horses day to day can be quite different, especially when we don't have many other tools in our toolbox. So what did I do? Well, there were three main elements to the approach that I took, all of which are relevant to how we might change unwanted behaviour in our horse. So let's dive in and explore those in some detail. So firstly, I changed the environment to make it difficult for me to do the behaviour that I wanted to stop, which was the smacking. So I put away all the whips and the flags and I didn't pick them up again. I swapped my knotted rope halter that had the long lead rope and the big heavy clip to a flat halter with a short rope and a light clip. In this way, I reduced my ability to use punishment. By taking away the tools that I'd typically use to smack my horses, I created an environment where smacking couldn't happen thoughtlessly or as part of a well-rehearsed reaction to certain behaviours from my horses. I also reduced contact with my horses when I had some kind of gear on them. So when I was training, wherever possible, I worked at liberty. So when my horse could wander off if they chose to with no consequence. And I also changed my day-to-day management of the horses. So I didn't need to lead them in and out of yards or paddocks. I could just open a gate and they'd take themselves in and out. So that reduced a lot of the day-to-day handling, which reduced the risk that punishment could happen. Making these changes gave me the space I needed to find other ways to train my horses and to deal with the unwanted behaviours. Managing the environment in this way gets an unwanted behaviour to stop because there's no opportunity to do it. So this does two things. So firstly, we stop our learner, so in this case me, practicing the unwanted behavior which was the smacking so every time we do a behavior the neural pathways associated with doing that behavior get stronger making it even more likely that the behavior is going to be repeated which is obviously not what we want so by changing the environment so that our learner is unable to practice the unwanted behavior the neural pathways start to reduce in strength And as time goes on, the behaviour becomes less likely to happen. Secondly, it gives us some time and breathing space to work out the cause of the unwanted behaviour and address that, as well as time to do any training that might be required to learn new or alternative behaviours to achieve the same goal. So this strategy is typically a short-term strategy that we use to buy us some time to train the behaviours we do want. However, In some cases, it works to just continue it indefinitely, which is how it turned out with me. I haven't picked up the whips again and I still manage my horses and train at liberty as much as possible. And we can use this strategy of managing the environment for horses exhibiting problem behaviours too. So it's really a version of setting up the environment for success. So let's say we've got a horse that pulls back when they're tied up. Now we might manage the environment to prevent them pulling back by not tying them up for a while. You know, we might just have them loose in a small yard or wash bay or a stable instead of tying them up. 
and we want to tuck them up or groom them. Or we might have a helper to hold them instead of tying them up. But essentially what we're trying to do here is to stop them practicing the unwanted behavior of pulling back. This buys us some time to figure out the reason for the behavior, address that. You know, perhaps they need the yard to be quieter or they need a friend around or they need some body work done. And it also gives us the breathing space to do some training around teaching them to stand still calmly. The second thing that I changed in order to help myself avoid using punishment was to change the way that I approached training my horses. And essentially that meant that I learned to train my horses using positive reinforcement, which because it required me to focus on what the horse was doing right and encourage that, it became a change for me that was incompatible with punishment, which is essentially focusing on what they're doing wrong. So it was a complete mental flip, really, from correcting the wrong things to rewarding the right things. So that's another fabulous strategy that we can really use to help change unwanted behavior, which is training our learner to do a new behavior that's incompatible with the one that we want them to stop. So, for example, teaching our dog to sit down to greet visitors stops him from jumping on people because sitting is incompatible with jumping up. Of course, I was not great at positive reinforcement when I started, so I also needed some management strategies to help me teach the horses what I did want them to do without having to deal with them doing the wrong thing. The chief amongst those was learning to use something called protective contact, which is where we train with a barrier between us and the horse. Now, it's a great technique to use, especially when either the horse or the human are first starting out with positive reinforcement. Having the barrier can keep everyone safe from any potential punishment while the horse is still learning how to stand in their own space and wait for the food to come to them. So until the horse is really solid on that, having the barrier means that when they move their nose towards you looking for the food, which is going to happen until you teach them what to do instead, when they do that, you can just step back away from the barrier. So you're not getting mugged and the horse learns that that's not a successful strategy without us needing to push the horse away or otherwise punish them for doing that behavior. I also learned how to set up the environment to make it likely that my horse would do the behavior I wanted, how to reward that behavior to get more of it and gradually change my criteria to go from whatever the horse first offered to the final version I was after. Now these strategies kept me focused on what the horse was doing right, which for me was an approach incompatible with using punishment. So again, this strategy of training our learner to do a behavior incompatible with the unwanted behavior is one we can teach our horses. So let's go back to that example of the horse who pulls back. So in the short term, we're not tying him up great. This has bought us some time to investigate further and do some training. So we've had a vet and a body worker check him over for any pain issues. We've made sure there's nothing frightening happening while he's tied up to trigger him to pull back. He's got companions around. So now we're ready to do some training. So let's train him to perform a behavior incompatible with pulling back. In this case, we might teach him to stand with his front feet on a mat, say a rubber doormat, in the location where you would want his front feet to be if he was tied up. So this is a good choice to train because later on when we do tie him up, unless he's tied up ridiculously short, 
he isn't going to be able to keep his front feet on that mat and pull back at the same time. Those things are incompatible. So if we can get him to reliably stand on the mat in the tying up location, then the pulling back behavior is going to stop because it's incompatible with mat standing. And I guarantee if you train this with positive reinforcement, pretty soon your horse is going to see that mat and be like, hello, mat, let me stand on you. It is going to become their all-time favorite thing to do. So the third element in my approach was to learn to pay attention to and interpret my horse's body language and behavior. Learning the early signs of stress meant that I could respond much earlier when my horses got stressed about something so they didn't need to shout at me with big scary behaviors and reducing the incidence of those big scary behaviors meant that I wasn't feeling the need to punish my horse for doing them. So punishment was reduced. Now as part of this, I also learned about the essential needs of our equines, key of which are friends, forage and freedom. And I did my best to change the way I managed my horses to better meet these needs. Doing this helped to keep their stress levels down, providing them with bandwidth to help cope with other stresses that they're going to encounter. So again, working to reduce the incidence of any big scary behaviours and my feeling the need to punish them for it. So it was quite a big change really. I had been housing my horses individually in separate but adjacent paddocks and I changed this up by gradually introducing them together and setting up an equicentral system. So they had permanent access to approximately two acre area that had lots of trees and hay roll and from there I could open different gates to provide them with rotating access to the five grassy paddocks that we had on the property. So making these changes also decreased any likelihood that my horses would react to something in a manner that made me feel the need to stop them doing the behaviour by using punishment in that moment. And this is a strategy that any of us can use to help our horses be calmer and have more bandwidth to deal with the everyday stresses that are going to come along. So regardless of whether our horse is currently presenting any behaviour issues or not. the other strategy that is always a really good one to think about with any unwanted behavior is to ask ourselves what is the function of the behavior what is our horse trying to achieve by doing the behavior that we don't like now this is something I talked about in detail in episode one so I won't rehash it all here but I do encourage you to go back and have a listen or a re-listen to episode one if you're currently struggling with unwanted behavior from your horse and you want to think about ways to change it. Whilst I know we focused a lot on corporal punishment, that is some form of hitting or physical punishment, because that's the common way that we punish horses, it's worth noting that there are other types of punishment. So physical punishment falls into the category of positive punishment. So the positive is relating to the addition of something that the learner finds unpleasant. In this case, a smack or a hit with a whip or a rope. The other category is negative punishment. And so the negative is relating to the removal of something that the learner desires. So for example, the loss of a riding lesson when growing up as a horse mad teenager was something I worked hard to avoid. 
you know, just the threat of that loss was usually enough to change my behaviour. Getting grounded also falls into this category with the loss of socialisation and freedom to leave the house. There's not really a lot of horse examples. However, the use of a patience pole comes to mind as perhaps an attempt to use negative punishment with the loss of freedom, access to food and water or companions that comes with it. So they're the three big needs that horses have. And the main problem I see with using this as a punisher is that it's really too far removed from any perceived wrongdoing on the part of the horse that is very unlikely to change the unwanted behaviour. It is, however, very likely to be very stressful for the horse because it involves removal of three of their very important needs, friends, forage and freedom. So it may, in fact, create more problems than it solves. Is there something that your horse or someone else in your life does that you don't like, that you're routinely trying to get them to stop doing by punishing them or using some sort of unpleasant consequence? So my challenge for you is to think about how else could you approach this unwanted behaviour? Is there a way that you could change the environment or the situation so that it's either impossible for them to do the behaviour or the situation that triggers the behaviour just doesn't occur? You know, my horse can't pull the stable door in anticipation of feed time, for example, if he's never in the stable whilst feeds are being prepared. So perhaps this means he's being fed in the paddock or his feed is already in the stable ready for him before he comes in. Ask yourself, what is the function of the behaviour? Is your horse trying to tell you that they're scared or worried about being separated from their friends or in pain? Are all of their needs met? If we can figure out the function of the behaviour and address that, often it's going to resolve the problem. Could you teach or encourage a behaviour incompatible with the one that you don't like? A horse who's touching their nose to a marker on the side of the stable for a reward isn't going to be biting the person who walks past. Touching the marker and biting the person are incompatible behaviours. They can't be done at the same time. Lastly, ask yourself if your horse's needs are met. They have a number of different needs, but key amongst them are having full access to equine companions, having room to move around, and having constant access to forage. If any one of these needs are not quite met, it'll increase a horse's stress load and make it less likely that that horse will cope well with any of the other stresses it encounters, so unwanted behaviours get more likely. Addressing this problem by meeting a horse's needs can reduce the stress load and the incidence of unwanted behaviours. To wrap up, I'd like to reiterate the key points we have discussed. So firstly, punishes are situations or things that happen to us that change our behaviour, specifically by getting us to decrease or stop doing something. Secondly, we live in a world where punishment feels ubiquitous. Most of us have been exposed to punishment our whole lives and it can seem like the only way to change unwanted behaviour. Thirdly, punishment often isn't effective long term. And fourthly, regardless of whether it's effective, punishment is costly 
It's damaging for the one being punished as well as for the relationship between the punisher and the punished. And lastly, there are alternatives to using punishment. I've touched on a few of them here. Managing the environment to prevent the behaviour occurring. Asking what's the function of the behaviour. Teaching an incompatible behaviour. Getting really good at reading body language and making sure all of our learners' needs are met. Wow, it has been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me in what has been episode eight of My Horse Taught Me That podcast. I look forward to coming to your eardrums soon with episode nine, where we will talk more about equine behavior, the horse-human relationship, and training concepts that are relevant not only for our horses, but also to the other animals and people in our lives. If you've enjoyed this podcast or found the information valuable, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. But more importantly, please don't keep it to yourself. Share this podcast with your friends and help me share it with the world by leaving a five-star rating or review. It really helps other people to find the podcast too. If you're longing to build an amazing relationship with your horse and want a checklist of ideas on how to get your horse to love being with you, then I've got you covered. Head on over to www.equestrianbalance.com.au forward slash love to get your free copy. There's also a load of other free resources that you can access from my website that you might want to check out whilst you're there. Lastly, a big thank you to Music Unlimited for our groovy soundtrack.